What's going on guys? Welcome back to the show. Today I'm going to go through the 10 most frequently asked questions that I get on Instagram or whatever other platforms. And there are definitely going to be things on the basic set side of the spectrum. And you know, sometimes you guys ask me if I ever get annoyed with getting the same questions week in and week out on Q and A's. Obviously there's going to be a lot of repeat questions and a lot of basic questions. The answer is I definitely do not get annoyed. I, it is reinforcing for me, uh, uh, that we still have a lot of work to do that we still need a lot of these basic questions to kind of permeate into the greater like general population. And so, you know, while some of these things today might be on the more basic side of the spectrum, if you're an avid listener or follower, there are a lot of people out there who really, we, we, we still want to go through these basics so that we can move on to more complex stuff. So without further ado, let's jump into the 10 most frequently asked questions that I get on Instagram. And I'm going to go not too in depth on each of them and try to keep it simple. And if you're somebody who has, doesn't even know where to start, this is going to be a really good podcast for you. The first question is, how do I know my maintenance calories? And what I would start with is use any calculator. And I think usually people understand that the calculators exist and people are usually asking this in the context of, okay, which calculator do I trust? There's so many different calculations. How do I, how do I pick one? And my advice would be use the Precision Nutrition Calculator or tdecalculator.net or both and use the average and just start. Just track for 30 days. Track your calories, track your weight, track your steps, track your protein for 30 days. And you'll know if your goal is to be at maintenance and you're losing weight, okay, it's a deficit. We need to adjust upward. If your goal is to be in a surplus and you're, or, or if you're gaining weight and your goal is to be at maintenance, okay, well then the calories are too high. The truth is you're never going to know until you start until you try. So use any calculator, any decent calculator. I like precision nutrition uh, ntdecalculator.net, but there are plenty other Mifflin, uh, St. Gior, there's, uh, uh, the, the, the Benedict one. <laughs> and so there's just so many, honestly, uh, it's funny. I don't know the answer to that. The, the, the end of that name, but, um, there's just so many, it doesn't freaking matter. Just pick one and get started. People are like, should I do 14 times body weight? Should I do 16 times body weight? Should I do 12 times goal weight? It's like, honestly, Obviously, those those last two I wouldn't do, but just in general, there's going to be so many calculations. Just pick one and track for 30 days consistently, not 24 days, not 20 days, 30 days consistently, day in and day out. Track your calories, track your weigh-ins, and you'll know. And that information that you get about yourself is going to be more valuable than whatever the calculator said. The calculator is just a starting point. It doesn't know your dieting history or your genetics. And, you know, a lot of people enter some things in activity level that isn't super accurate. So just freaking pick something and get started. Question number two, how do I know when I'm back at maintenance after a reverse diet? So how do I know that I'm at maintenance after a reverse diet? And I was explaining this to a client recently, and so this this is a question I was excited to go through, kind of basic, uh, the basics. You should start with an educated guess, and that goes back to our first uh, uh, question of like, how do you know what maintenance is? You should start with an educated guess. If you are reversing out of your deficit back to maintenance, before you begin that process, you should have a... Uh, a range of calories that you think you'll end up in, right? You should have a, a place you think you'll end up in, and it can be a several hundred calorie range. I'll give you an example. I have a client right now. He's uh, 215 pounds. And we've been in a deficit for about 12 weeks. He's lost about 20 pounds, and we are reversing him back to maintenance, and he's currently eating, I think, 2,500 calories, and we guess that his maintenance, based on a number of factors, we use some calculators, I use some past experience and intuition, we guess that his calorie range is, or his maintenance range is somewhere between 32 and 36, somewhere in that range. Now you might say that's a pretty damn wide range. That's a 400 calorie range. Yeah, it is because we don't really know. It could be anywhere within there, but 
based on what calorie calculators have said, based on our past, my past experience and intuition, also based on some of the math of how much weight he lost at certain number of calories, you can kind of reverse engineer what his maintenance might be. We were able to come up with, hey, it's probably somewhere between 32 and 36. And so now that you have this range, you you know that it's probably going to be in that range. So the question is, how do I know when I'm back at maintenance after reverse diet? Well, you, you know it's gonna be somewhere in that range. So as you reverse, and we're not gonna talk about should you reverse fast or slow, but as you get as you get close to that 3,200 mark, which is the bottom end of where we think it might be maintenance, you can start to go slower and assess the data over a longer time frame. Maybe you went really fast up to that bottom end of where you think it might be maintenance. Maybe you jumped right to that, which I think is actually a pretty solid idea, and that's what we are gonna do. When you get there, maybe you wait, you know, people are like, oh, 100 calories a week, 50 calories a week. It's like, okay, but as I get closer to where I think might be maintenance based on my educated guess, you can make calorie uh, additions more slowly and assess the data, how your body's responding, your biofeedback's responding over a longer time frame. Let's say we were at 2,500 and we were reversing super freaking slow for no reason, by the way, and I don't want to go too, on too much of a rant. And let's say we added 100 calories a week, 2,500, 2,600. 2,700, like you can go faster than that. But as you get closer to that mark where you think it might start to be maintenance, maybe you look at the data every two weeks or every four weeks to say, hey, am I at maintenance? What's my body, what's happening to my body weight? And don't freak out if when you raise calories, your body weight goes up initially. That's why as you get closer to where you think you will end up, you can go slower and you can say, hey, every two to four weeks, I'm gonna assess if I wanna go up in calories because you're gonna see a slight bump in weight often when you increase calories. And if you do, I don't want you to freak out and think, okay, well, I must be at a surplus. It's like, give it a longer period of time. If you go up by hundred calories, give it two to four weeks, especially actually more specifically, if you're within that range of the educated guess that you started with. Um, obviously, as you get into that range, start to assess biofeedback and body weight. If your biofeedback still feels like you're in a deficit, you're still hungry, you're still cranky, you're still irritable, fatigued, then you're probably not at maintenance yet. And if your body weight is trending up, even, you know, if you zoom out and you check every two weeks and body weight's still going up, you know, week after week, two to four weeks in a row, okay, that's probably a surplus, you know. Uh, if your body weight goes up initially and then bounces around and levels off, that's more likely normal uh, still in the in the realm of maybe we want to go up from there. But if you're saying, okay, now that I'm above that 3,200 mark where I think this might be maintenance, I'm going to zoom out and I'll wait maybe two to four weeks to kind of make that call. I'll combine that with how am I feeling during that time? Because if you get to a point where your body weight's not moving, right, it, it feels like maintenance from an objective data perspective, and you feel freaking awesome, that's a that's a pretty good indication. Okay, I'm at maintenance now. Now, the question after that is, could you push up higher and feel even better and still be at maintenance? Maybe. But I think getting to a point where your body weight is sta stable and you feel amazing, you feel like you've reversed that, that diet fatigue is pretty pretty good checkpoint, right? It's a pretty great place to be. Um, and then one more caveat I'll put on here is like, let's say you're wrong. Let's say you overshoot maintenance. Let's say you overshoot maintenance. I don't want to go to harp on this too much. Let's say you overshoot it by 100 calories, 200 calories, and you slip into a small surplus. One, you're going to feel amazing very quickly. So the biofeedback side of things is going to be awesome even quicker because you're in a, in, in a, a state of abundance. Your body, uh, like all of the diet fatigue, metabolic adaptation, any of that stuff will reverse itself even more quickly. So from a biofeedback standpoint, you're gonna feel great. 
Also, if you slip into a small surplus and you're lifting, well then, okay, maybe that wasn't your intent and you didn't want to go into a surplus, but shit, you're, if you're lifting, at least you're spending time building muscle optimally. People freak out. They're like, oh my God, I went to a surplus for the last two weeks by accident. I gained two pounds. It's like, okay, those are the two most productive muscle building weeks that you've had in the last 12. And so if you slip into a small surplus, honestly, it's partially awesome. You're building muscle. And I know that that is not maybe your intent, but it is not all bad. It's not like, oh, you gained all fat. It's like, okay, you went to a surplus. Let's course correct because that isn't the intent. But just know that any time you spend in a surplus whilst lifting is probably still like, I always imagine like it's still money that's put away into your like metaphorical Roth IRA of muscle. It's like still some time that was spent doing something productive because chances are building muscle is part of your goal. Okay, next one, question number three. What sort of cardio should I do for fat loss? Really simple, guys. If your goal is fat loss and you're thinking about cardio, you should be doing the cardio that you enjoy, that you can sustain. And truthfully, I enjoy just giving a step count to clients and letting them accumulate steps in the way that they enjoy, that is most practical and most uh, they're able to stay consistent with during their deficit. Like steps is great, steps, counting steps is great because it's all encompassing. If you have to get on the treadmill or the elliptical or the bike or whatever to get some steps, fine. If you're the kind of person who just wants to be more active during your day and accumulate steps that way, fine. Like high intensity interval training is not superior for fat loss. Running is not superior. Just get freaking steps. If you have to do running or you like doing, or you like running or you, you, you know, like doing high intensity interval training, that that's fine. That's what I care about most. What are you going to be most consistent with? What do you like doing? What does your life allow you to do from a practical standpoint? Now I'd say that actually there's probably some downsides with hit and running because of how high impact and, and the muscle damage that can come from some of that stuff. And, and frankly, if you could get all your steps from walking during a fat loss phase, while spending the more high intensity work, lifting weights and controlling your nutrition, I think that would probably be the, generally speaking, a pretty optimal scenario where if you're doing a ton of running and ton of hit, a lot of times that's going to create a lot of muscle damage and a lot of fatigue and also bleed into your strength training if that's something that you want to be doing. Cool. Question number four. Um, what are the best exercises for glutes? I, I'm doing a Q&A right when I'm done with this on Instagram and I already know that this question is sitting there. So for starters, best is a weird word because things definitely need more context. Like there's at least three sections of the glute uh, that we want to be working. And so already we have a question of like, okay, but for which part of the glute? Um, and, and to keep this simple and to not to dive into too much intricate context, you should, you should do, uh, some form of a bridge, some form of a hinge and some form of, uh, a lunge or a split squat. And so things like glute bridges, hip thrusts, which would, I would fall under that like hip extension bridge and then hinges like RDLs and 45 degree hip extensions. And then lunge slash split squats like a uh, rear foot elevated Bulgarian split squat or deficit lunges are all really, really good for glutes. There's obviously other exercises like step-ups I think are wonderful or uh, underrated exercise for glutes. Um, but you should do something with that focuses on a bridge motion, a hinge motion, and some form of a lunge or split squat. Next question is, can I make gains if I'm training at home? I already saw this in my Q&A for today, so definitely going to redirect you guys here. Um, the answer at face value is yes, but again, there's a ton of context. Are you an elite lifter who's been lifting for many years and is already really strong? The most important thing here is, do you have enough load to challenge yourself in the hypertrophy rep range of, let's say, 5 to 20? Do you have enough load? If you're a really strong individual, lean, strong per pound of body weight, and you have, let's say, no, and you have a pair of 15s, it's going to be really hard to hypertrophy your back and chest 
and quads and hamstrings and glutes. You don't just don't have enough load to get you close to failure in the target rep range. So let's assume you have enough load via dumbbells, a bench, and a barbell or a barbell and a rack. Let's say that that's what people mean when they say I'm training at home. So you have dumbbells, an adjustable bench, and a barbell and a rack. And you, you have enough load to challenge yourself in the hypertrophy rep range. You for fucking sure can make gains 100%. But you'll miss out on two things. You'll miss out on variation, right? You, you only have so much variation with dumbbells and barbells. That's it, right? There's only so much variation in terms of resistance profile. Like all your dumbbell and barbell work are going to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, going against gravity and going to have a, usually an ascending resistance curve where things are really hard in one position, really easy in another position. So that sort of variation, you know, is a downside. Obviously, there's a lot of amazing dumbbell and barbell exercises, and I've been doing this for, you know, years now of people training at home. You can make great gains, totally, but you're going to miss out a little bit in terms of gains because of the lack of variation that you have. You'll also probably get bored because of the lack of variation. Now, obviously, you have a good coach who's going to vary things up as best they can, tempo, rep range, you know, uh, uh, intensity techniques, and definitely make it as different as possible from, not as different as possible from block to block, but over the course of time, enough variation to keep you mentally stimulated, for sure. Um, but still, there's still only so much you can do. I've had clients who finally pulled the trigger on a cable setup or just even a top-down cable rack for uh, for their uh, top-down cable setup for their rack. And it's like, holy crap, you know, we add 10 new exercises to your arsenal and all of a sudden you're way more like psychologically invigorated to train. You'll also miss out on potentially more joint-friendly options if you're just using barbells. Yeah, I think dumbbells are better for sure, but even just using dumbbells and barbells, you're gonna miss out on some more joint-friendly options, which over the long term might be an issue. My advice is if you're gonna be training at home, you need at least dumbbells, a bench, and a barbell, and a rack. And I would highly, highly suggest buying a cable setup for your rack. Uh, even if it's just a top and bottom cable, that's gonna be fantastic. Add a ton of exercises to your arsenal. And I have a full podcast on if you're gonna train at home, what should you buy? I will link that in the description below. Next question is, what certifications do I recommend for upcoming coaches? So I'm gonna link an episode that I just did on Danny Matranga's podcast. Uh, Danny's a good friend of mine, wonderful podcast, and he had me on. And this was one of the questions that we dove deep into. So I'm gonna link that below, but I'll obviously give you guys my answer here. Um, I believe we went back and forth for, for quite a long time on this. So I'll give you the abridged version here. If you guys wanna go listen to that, it's a good episode as well. Uh, the two that I recommend, obviously I'm biased. I think I have been lucky enough maybe to have two two uh, certifications that I believe very strongly in. The first is the N1, um, which is Coach Kasim's uh, company, uh, the N1 Biomechanics. Actually, I've done all their courses by now, the programming one and the, the sleep and digestion one as well. And so I think anything that N1 right now is putting out, it's like really top notch. And so if you're looking for like a seal of approval, I'd say anything from N1 is really great. And from a nutrition standpoint, I love Martin McDonald's um, Mac Nutrition Uni. I think it's a, a, a wonderful, wonderful certification that, teaches you how to work with a wide spectrum of people from clinical setting to muscle building to fat loss to endurance athletes to to you know team sports athletes and also teaches you a lot about reading research and and kind of how to view things from an evidence-based perspective so very much enjoyed both of those courses i think it's definitely done uh, been really great for me like shaping my knowledge and further education from there that being said other than those two those are the the two that i can really stand behind other than that i'm not saying there aren't other good ones there there most certainly are um, but as of right now, seeing as though those are the two main ones that I've embarked on myself, those are the two that I feel confident standing behind. I would say that 
signing up for popular research reviews by really, really reputable people would be the next best way to go about continued education. And so the three that I tend to recommend right now are one is Chris Beardsley's research review. Uh, Chris Beardsley does a ton of amazing uh, reviews on research, mainly on hypertrophy training and strength training, which is awesome. And then there's Alan Aragon's research review, A-A-R-R, Alan Aragon's research review, uh, which is uh, mostly nutrition-based, but also in the realm of body composition and also covers a, a wide spectrum. I don't wanna say it's just body composition. It's a wonderful review. Um, Alan's is probably the most digestible, which is why I love it so much. Alan does a, a wonderful job typing things out in layman's terms, has some really good guest article writers. And it's it's. I'm not saying it's my favorite because I think Chris Beardsley's right now has been uh, super beneficial because I'm just in a state right now where I'm nerding out about the science behind hypertrophy training a little bit. Um, more than everything else. But Alan's has been one that I've been reading for years, massively beneficial, love him to death. Um, just a really, really good research review. And then the last one would be Mass um, uh, Muscle and Strength Sports podcast, which is written by the guys over at Stronger by Science, which is Trexler, Knuckles, um, oh my God, um, Eric Helms and other people as well. I think there's a fourth writer as well. I always forget him. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, whoever you're out there. Um, but Mass is also really, really great. It does, it covers, you know, everything from strength sports um, to team sports to to Olympic lifting and nutrition as well. And so I think that with those three, if you, if you actually read those every time they came out each month, which is a tall order, um, you would get some amazing, amazing information month to month. And then the last two things I wanted to touch about, one would be get out there and coach people. I know that there's a big, um, it's very easy to feel imposter syndrome when you just are first starting out. And whether that's imposter syndrome from a nutrition standpoint or from a programming standpoint, like what I wanna leave you guys with is you don't need as much as you think to help the average person. Now there are gonna be people that are outside of your scope from the get-go. And then obviously the more you know, the more people will fall in your scope in terms of their goals and, and maybe like their experiences. But if you're out there and you're feeling imposter syndrome, just remember that, just remember the kind of questions I'm answering in this podcast. Most people have these questions. And if you know the answers to these questions, then you're gonna do really great at helping the average person. Guess what? The average person is most people. You don't need to know as much as you think to help somebody lose some weight, get healthier, get stronger in the gym. Now, going from you know doing things pretty well to doing them, you know, quote, optimally, right? Obviously, this podcast is about the marriage between optimal and practical. And so, yes, you should continue your education and then you will be able to do better service for your clients. But if you're feeling like you have some, some imposter syndrome, my advice is get out there and help people obviously identify when people are out, outside of your scope, but get out there and help people. Get a job hiring, uh, coaching people in person, coach people online, coach your family, coach your friends. You don't need to know as much as you think to help people. Cool. Uh, should I train abs? Next question. I already know what number we're on. Should I train abs? It's a tricky question because the answer is very simple. If having the absolute best abs that you can have is one of your main goals, then you should 100% train abs. In the same vein, most people, everyone has a rectus abdominis muscle, everybody has a quote unquote six pack. It's just most people are covered in fat. And so yes, the quote abs are made in the kitchen is, you know, leaves a, 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 an important sentiment of you probably need to get leaner. And I'd say for most people, the ab training, it's like, you know, things aren't mutually exclusive. It's not like you can't train abs and focus on your nutrition and getting leaner. It's just that most people have like a hierarchy that's a value hierarchy of like where they put their mental focus and it's a little bit out of whack. And I think if you're somebody out there who's gonna also work on getting really lean and you wanna make sure that you have the best possible abs when you get there, then you should absolutely train abs. 
Now, personally, I fucking hate training abs. I think it's the most boring, annoying thing ever. Now, I would also layer on top of that, if we're being totally transparent, I have genetically less body fat there, and it's that's certainly a confounding variable that makes me biased, maybe. I also just think training abs is super boring and not fun at all. It's not like uh, uh, something that's fun to get a pump. The exercises that you're doing themselves are not fun, and so I think it's just something that, one, is not fun and usually has a poor work-to-reward ratio, especially considering people really need to get leaner to get any use out of it. So if you don't plan on getting super lean to a point where you actually see your abs, if you're gonna maintain a level of body fat where they're not gonna be visible anyway, it's like, you combine that with the fact that it's not very fun, it's like, fuck. Like, you can take from that what you will. If you plan on getting really lean and having abs is really important to you, freaking train abs. And if you're gonna train abs, I'd say some form of flexion from the top down uh, where you're doing something like a, a TVA crunch or a decline sit-up, um, or even just like a really, really, really well done crunch, which I say that with like the utmost asterisk because most people do crunches horrendously. Um, and so I think that you you can do some form of flexion from the top down, but also something from the bottom up, like a hanging knee raise, uh, a leg raise. Um, also, I would focus on actually doing some form of spinal flexion, not just doing hip flexion, like bringing your knees up and your core not moving at all is not the best way to train. That's really just training your hip flexors. So make sure if you're doing a hanging knee raise that you're actually getting to the point where your uh, your spine flexes at the bottom. Uh, and that's it. Next question, how much protein is needed for muscle growth? Most research says at 1.6 grams per kg or about 0.77 grams per pound, so we can round up and say 0.8, is sufficient for optimal muscle growth. Listen to me again, 0.77, let's say 0.8 grams per pound is sufficient for optimal muscle growth. Now, why do people say you need a gram per pound? They say you need a gram per pound because if you shoot for the, you know, you shoot for the stars, you land on a cloud or whatever that bullshit, like if you, like a couple of reasons. One, it's super easy math. You multiply one times your body weight and that's how much protein you eat. Um, is that a flawed number for people who have, are, have slightly more body fat? Definitely. It's probably gonna be more than you need. Um, but advising people on more than they need. It's the same as like, how much water do I need to drink? You got to drink a gallon. It's like, most people don't need to drink a gallon of water. But the advice is there because it's an easy number that people can say, and it is more than enough. And so if people are eating one gram per pound or a little bit less because they, you know, it's a ton of protein, then they're doing good. They're doing they're doing well. They have an optimal uh, um, protein intake. So it's an easy thing to say, oh, gram per pound, because it's easy math and it's more than enough. So if people are actually doing it, then they're definitely getting optimal benefit of the protein. Um, but I'd say, man, I, I have clients who are at you know, 0.75 to 1.2 and anywhere in between. I'd say once you're above 0.8, the you, you know more might be, quote, better if it increases satiety of the diet for you. And that's an important factor. If going up to one or 1.2 grams per pound increases the overall satiety of the diet, and that is an important factor for you, maybe in fat loss, maybe at maintenance, then that's that might be a reason to go higher. I also think that occasionally going higher for something called a protein refeed, which is an advanced topic that I shouldn't have mentioned just now, but let's say you're in the midst of a diet and having a higher calorie day is gonna be something that really helps your adherence. If you do that with higher protein for that one day, again, this isn't habitual. Um, if it's higher via protein, we do see that the conversion of uh, excess calories from protein to, to body fat is a pretty inefficient process. So uh, it's a decent tool, which we can talk about another time. More might be better if you just like it, right? If you, someone's like, yeah, 0.8's great, but I like eating protein. Personally, I weigh, what do I weigh right now? Like 195. My protein's at like between 220 and 250 every day. 
Not because I think like there's some massive muscle gain north of one gram per pound, but that's just the way I like to eat. I have, you know, 40 to 70 grams of protein per meal. That's just the way it is. That's the way I like to eat. And then the last reason you might want more is if you really do believe that, like I would I would say that if you put a gun to my head and say, hey, if somebody eats 0.8 grams per pound or and another person eats 1.2 grams per pound, is there any, in a binary sense, more muscle gain at 1.2 grams per pound? I would bet yes. I would bet it's so in, indistinguishable, so undetectable that at this point we can just say it's non-existent, but it probably exists. And so if you're a pro bodybuilder and if 0.01 grams of, of bicep weight is left on the table, you lose your show, then I would say, okay, go a little bit higher so that you don't leave that up to chance. Okie doke. Uh, what do we got left? One, two, two questions. Ah, we're moving. What's the best macro sp split for fat loss? Well, um, short answer is there is none. There's no best macro split. Um, because for fat loss, what we need to what we need to worry about most is calories and adherence, adhering to your calories. And essentially, for those of you guys who might not know, your macros are your calories, uh, are your protein, your carbs, and your fats. And if you add up the calories from your macros, it it equals your calories. And so, if we were looking at best macro split, or at least in a general sense, the way you might want to think about the macros is, you want enough protein to maintain muscle, right? So we circle back to the last question: at least 0.8 grams per pound. And P.S. While we're on the to on the topic, if your goal is maintaining muscle, eating protein is not enough. Eating protein isn't the most important thing. The training stimulus is the most important thing. The actually training hard is way more important than how much protein you eat. If you eat a lot of protein and you don't train, you're going to lose muscle. If you eat slightly suboptimal protein but your training's really good, you're going to maintain muscle much better. Uh, obviously, doing both would give you the best. So eat enough protein to maintain muscle. Eat enough fat for optimal hormone production, uh, immune system function, cell function and eat enough carbs to support your training, your training volume and intensity, let's say. So what do those numbers kind of look like? Um, they're all gonna start with an at, at least, because once you have an at least on some of this stuff, it really isn't gonna matter where the rest comes from as long as you're within your calories. So I'd say at least 0.8 grams per pound of protein. At least for women, 0.4 grams per pound of fat, maybe as low as 0.3, and for men, at least 0.3, maybe as low as maybe 0.25 if you're in a deficit um, grams per pound of fat. And then carbohydrates is gonna be dictated by the amount of training volume and intensity that you have. And so that number is gonna be definitely a little bit more in, uh, individualized depending on what kind of program you're on, but also coming down to personal preference. So what do we do with this answer? What's cool is when you tell people to count calories and protein, like I do most of the time for my you know, gen pop clients, they end up doing that, right? When you tell somebody to count calories and proteins, so you give somebody a calorie number and you tell them, hey, 0.8 grams per pound of body weight or more they end up eating enough fat for optimal hormone production and enough carbs to support their training. It doesn't mean like, you know, and, and they end up doing that because when they think about, when they're not counting all three numbers, they're worried about calories and protein, they end up choosing an eating pattern that they enjoy more, that they can adhere to more because adherence to your calories for fat loss is by far the most important part. And so if I give you very specific macro counts, especially with carbs and fats, and that doesn't reflect the way that you like to eat, maybe you like slightly higher fat, eating protocol. Maybe you like a, a low fat, high carbohydrate protocol. And so if I, we are not matching that. Now you could say, well, why don't we just figure that out and then match it? Well, a lot of people don't really know that. And then we have to do some investigation into how you normally eat. And there's some confounding variables. And by the way, that's a fine way to go about doing things, which I'll talk about at the end. Um, but I find that when you give people calories and protein and you don't be, are, when you're not overly scrutinizing the exact carb to fat ratios, people end up hitting 
enough fat, hitting enough carbs, and choosing an eating pattern that they enjoy. And that last part about an eating pattern that they enjoy is going to circle back around and give you the best chance to adhere to your calories, which is, again, the most important thing for fat loss. Now, this doesn't mean that counting macros is never useful. Of course not. Um, it usually just plays out fine without having to count all three macros for most people in most circumstances with most goals. Now, I have clients who count macros, and I know coaches who prescribe macros, and I'm sure there are people that enjoy it, and I'm sure there are coaches who teach it really well and work with their clients to figure out a ratio that works for them totally. I'm not saying it's never something you want to use. What I am saying is there is no best macro split for fat loss. For fat loss, what we want is probably enough protein to maintain muscle and then a, a distribution of carbs and fats that allows you to actually adhere to your calories consistently. That's the most important factor. Um, and so again, there are probably a lot of people out there who enjoy counting all the macros. And I, I could probably guess as to a couple of reasons why, but I've had many opposite experiences and maybe that's my own echo chamber and, and kind of um, the people that I attract who have come to me counting all the macros, you know, within a very short gap, you know, within five grams of each macro, let's say, um, and go to tracking counter, cal uh, tracking calories and protein only and have found a, a new lease on life almost, have this new feeling of flexibility. Uh, some shack It feels like the shackles are off because they're allowed to, eat in a pattern that might change each day. You might have a high fat day here and a high carb day here and a high fat day here and a high carb day here because you are out and somebody made a ribeye when you weren't expecting to have, you know, you thought you were gonna have chicken breast. And so that level of flexibility where, and I guess this needs to be said, you're gonna have the same results. Listen to me very carefully. The same body composition results, especially in terms of fat loss with a high fat diet or a high carb diet or a mixed fat and carb diet so long as calories and protein are equated. And so if you're counting calories and protein and those are equated, it does not matter what you do with your carbs and fats in terms of end result body composition. It does matter in terms of adherence. And that's why giving people a little bit more flexibility might be really great. Now, obviously there's a counter argument of too much flexibility, people working better with more structure. That's fine. I think there are still probably better ways of doing that than giving very specific uh, macro goals. Um, now, again, that being said, I guess I would put one little asterisk on the end here, like if your goal was maximum, maximum muscle growth and you did not care about being flexible day to day, you were someone who adherence is super high, your goals are super important, you're a high achiever, is there a best macro split maybe for muscle gain? Maybe, I'd say if there were, it probably sounds something like enough protein to, to build muscle, right? 0.8 grams per pound or more, just enough fat, so on the relatively low end of that spectrum in that like 0.3 to 0.4 grams per pound, and then all the rest of your calories up to your, uh, all the rest of your calories coming from carbohydrates. So those carbs being high in an attempt to recover and perform from training more optimally. And, you know, there's some, they're protein sparing, they can reduce cortisol. And so there are some other side benefits to that. But in the context of fat loss, and honestly, even in the context of muscle gain, as long as you're not going super low in carbohydrates, it's probably going to be very similar. All right, last question is, how do you build, or how do I build my own workout split? First, I have a podcast that I'll link in the description that goes, you know, I think it's titled How to Build a, a Half-Decent Program for Hypertrophy, and it goes over the basics of how to build a basic, balanced program. It's not it's not going to split the atom, but it's going to get you close. It's going to give you a balanced program that has, you know, a good balance of vertical pulling, vertical pushing, hinging, squatting, lunging, quad work, glute work, and so there's a podcast I would love for you guys to listen. I think it's super helpful. Um, but whenever somebody asks me this question, I think to myself, why would you want to? Like, do you decide your own dosage for medication or do you let your doctor do it? You know, like 
You know, maybe you, maybe you want to understand why your doctor prescribed something. You want to understand the dosage. You do some Googling, hopefully not, but you ask some questions and you make sure you understand the what and the why. But at the end of the day, you hire a professional and you leave it up to them. Now, I'm not saying that this is something that's so complicated that people can't do it on their own. Agreed. I don't think it's that complicated. But I do think that like as somebody who spent the last, you know, 20 years, how old am I now? 50, you know, 12 years, um, working on this and getting better at it. It's something that strikes me as odd when people, and by the way, I have clients who wanna build their own programs and that's one of the reasons that they come to me is to learn. So we, I absolutely am happy to work with people, but I do think on some level like, man, I've been doing this for 12 years and I never wanna write my own program. Do I wanna be a part of the process? Yes. Do I wanna understand why we're doing what we're doing? Yes. Do I wanna have some say in exercise selection? Sure. But do I wanna build it top to bottom? Do I wanna go through all of that? I just don't. Like even I hire somebody else to do that. Like I write programs all day. It's not, like, it's not even that I can't do it. It's like the just the the outsourcing of that is often quite nice. Now I wanna understand why and I want my clients to understand why and I work through it with them. But I'm always interested in like the average person. Listen to me, the average person, you can only be really good at like one or maybe one thing in your life across your whole lifespan. Like this isn't something that the average person needs to be worried about too much. There's so like, uh, uh, there are a million and one online coaches who can give you a half decent program. There are a million and one even cheaper options uh, in terms of like programming services, cough, cough, wink, wink. I might have one coming out soon um, that are uh, cheaper that can give you a half decent program. Again, less individualized, but still decent. Um, and so I just, it, it struck me as something I would never want to do myself. Like if I'm the average person writing my own workouts and deciding you know, when and how to swap exercises and rep ranges and stimuli, sounds fucking miserable. Like hiring a coach or programming service, service is an investment and one that will take out all the guesswork and leave you with more time to do other things in your life and give, you know, taking out the guesswork and letting you show up to the gym and just execute. And that's something that I just, I don't know, for the average people listening out there, I don't want you to stress about building your own workouts, but I want you to hire somebody and I want you to understand you should learn the what and the why and be a part of that process. But man, to take that on forever and, and be in charge of all the swaps and all the variables. And I don't know, not something I personally would want to do. Um, cool. So that does it guys. Those are the top 10 questions that I get on Instagram. And you, uh, you might, uh, I might be linking this quite a bit for some of these questions, but hope you enjoyed the episode. If you uh, like the episode, leaving a five-star review is super helpful. If you know somebody who would benefit from some of these questions being answered, shoot that, that uh, person, the podcast would be really great. And that's it. Have a good one, guys. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.